Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. On this week's show, we are joined by Rob Doster, NBC Sports, the co-host of the College Basketball Talk podcast. I think one of the best college basketball podcasts uh, going. And Rob's going to talk to us about a bunch of topics around the sport. Uh, what's going to happen next season, as always, or as usually is the case, Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, will join us, and uh, we'll have a good talk, including some some Gators, of course. So hope you guys enjoy the show. Make sure you follow Rob on Twitter, at Rob Doster. That's R-O-B-D-A-U-S-T-E-R. All right, enjoy the show. Rob, and we will start, um, you know, by introducing Rob Doster is our guest, uh, writes at NBCSports.com, a, one of my favorite college basketball writers, host of the NBC Sports College Basketball Talk podcast, I guess co-host, right, Rob? And uh, probably the only guy who likes the uh, Ali Farouk Banesh shot more than me. So <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome, Rob. What's going on, guys? How we doing? Hey, it's good. And, you know, I'm a loyal listener of your podcast. So when you were coming on, I had to make sure to have a good beer on hand. Uh, I'm not going to call it the craft beer cast. That's your thing. But hey, here at Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, we've got uh, some of the best beer in the world. And from uh, Situation Brewers here in, in, in Edmonton, I've got the uh, the bookmark Pale Ale. And it's uh, it's one of the best summer beers. So I, I have that in honor of you, Rob. Had to make sure I had good quality beer for, for having you on the show. Well, that, that makes me feel a little less guilty then because I'm drinking a, it's something called King Sioux, which is from um, the Toppling Goliath Brewery in Iowa. And it's a dip, obviously, because that's pretty much all I drink these days. But um, I don't. It's really good, man. I did not expect like a nice, crisp West Coast style IPA from a brewery in the middle of Iowa, but I found one. Hey, here, here's the thing, because I live in uh, hey the middle of nowhere too, in, in Western Canada and the prairies. But uh, hey, man, like uh, this beer that I'm drinking, the hops were grown 15 minutes to the east of me, and the barley was grown 20 minutes to the north of me. So uh, when you say Iowa's got good beer, I'm like, hey, at least uh, at least you know those uh, those farmers are nearby uh, producing some good stuff. But hey, even a West Coast IPA, I could I, I could see how you'd be a little hesitant. But hey, I'm, I'm glad you glad it worked out for you. Well, that's the thing about it. Like when you're with with hops and especially like the really really hoppy beer. The fresher it is, the better. So if you're getting that stuff from close by, you know they're like they're probably brewing with it straight off of uh you know whatever. However, I don't know how you farm hops, but um, <laughs> they're like they're probably picking them and then just throwing them straight into the brew. And then uh, if it's like brewed right by you, then you can probably get it very quickly after the beer is finished. And then uh, you know if you're like me, then you're probably cracking one as soon as you get home. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, just the, the freshness of those beers that you're going to get is going to make up for anything that, uh, you know, the the thing about like Washington and, and Southern California and those certain places is just the climate is exactly what you need to be able to grow the kind of hops that are good for uh, really strong, really hoppy and really crisp IPAs. So the fresher it is, the closer you're going to be able to get to that stuff. Yeah, so if you uh, if you want some good college basketball talk, you definitely gotta gotta check out Doster's podcast. But hey, if you want some uh, some good beer talk in there, there's usually you know five minutes of that to to to, to start off each one. So uh, yeah, just another plug there for uh, for your podcast there, Rob. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. I'm glad someone finally like uh, I love talking about beer almost as much as I love talking about uh, college basketball. So I'm glad somebody is at least getting something out of that. <laughs> yeah, oh no, no it's. 
it's it starts it off good. I I enjoy it for sure. Yeah, no, rounding it out, I have the uh, legend has it Pilsner from um, Creature Comforts Brewing in Athens, Georgia. Which don't say that a Florida basketball show can't do something for Athens, Georgia, because I, <laughs> I I was about to say, man, you uh, you're sleeping with the enemy a little bit there. Yeah, well, I, no, no doubt. They they partnered with uh, Run the Jewels, and John Lewis is reputed to have loved this beer. So, that, hey, you know what? That's completely acceptable. I, <laughs> I, I 100% support that, then. Hey, great, great beer has no allegiances. It's a universal <laughs> there language. There you go. I like it. That's it. So, um, Rob, you know, I, I will often uh, send our, our listeners – some of your work, one of the pieces that I thought was super interesting kind of in this moment uh, that that we've been having, (laughs) we've been having a lot of moments culturally, but, you know, just looking at high major head coaches and and how many of them, you know, were black 10, 15 years ago. And now we're, you know, that number has really, has really dropped. And I guess you kind of wrote a piece on, on that trend back in, in March. Tell us, you know, what got you thinking about that and, and, you know, if you kind of came to any, you know, thoughts as to why that was. So I think some of it is to me is it's, it's a little bit cyclical, right? Like I I think that um, part of it is just, there's a tendency when you are going through the hiring process for some of these coaches where like, if you have uh, like a, an an old white guy for a coach, like the, the next coach that you're going to hire is, uh, you're going to be like, all right, that didn't work, so let's try something different. Sometimes you end up like the next move you're going to make is you're going to hire a young black coach, and then you're like, oh, that didn't work, so let me try something new. Let's go hire some young white uh, head coach that doesn't have playing experience or something off of somebody's bench. So I, I think part of it is just kind of um, just cyclical a little bit by nature, and and maybe even a little bit random. But um, I think when you kind of get into it a little bit more and you talk to people that are going through some of the the interview processes and and coaches that. Uh, maybe didn't get involved with a job that they made perfect sense for. Uh, it, it just seemed like the number of the, the the percentage of of black head coaches that there are in college basketball, when you compare to the number of uh, black Division One basketball players that there are, just it, it doesn't make sense that you can have such a high number of athletes look a certain way. And the number of coaches is just so like the, the, the total image is so different. Um, and, and I think it was, uh, so right now, if you look at the power five conferences, I believe it's eight out of 65 head coaches are black. Whereas it's over 80% of the number of scholarship players are black. And, and that those numbers just being so entirely out of whack, um, is definitely something that, it gets brought up a lot. Like when you're talking to coaches and when you're talking to different people that maybe didn't get a job that they were expecting to get, or didn't even get an interview at a place that they really should have gotten an interview. Like it's that kind of stuff that comes up and, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm white, so I don't have that kind of stuff. Um, the thought of me not getting a job, it never creeps into it. Like, Oh, I didn't get the job cause I'm white. Right. It's like, Oh, I didn't get the job because I wasn't, qualified enough for the job or this other person got it who was a better candidate whereas these guys are in the situation where they're like well if i have a resume that matches up with this guy and i have credentials that match up with this guy and i played the game at a at a, at a very high level and i you know i've been on this coaching staff and, and i've been doing this for so many years how come i'm not getting a job when that guy's getting the job is it because of the color of my skin and uh, it's definitely a conversation that has had with a lot of people in different levels of coaching. And, and I thought it was something that was definitely worth exploring a little bit more. 
Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you for just being bold enough to to write about this. Uh, I know some people definitely would have uh, shied away from that, especially like you said, uh, a, a white dude who covers college basketball. But I think it was a super important article. I really opened my eyes. Uh, like just even the fact that you were able to put numbers to something that I was seeing, you know, I I, I still was shocked by the number of, of how uh, how few black head coaches there were. Uh, I also do want to point out, I, I forget if it was your piece or, or uh, maybe a reaction to it, but I, I think there's only seven staffs in the country uh, at all levels that have uh, that have all black assistants, have three black assistants, and Florida is one of them. So uh, that's something I just uh, do think we need to point out as a uh, as a Florida basketball podcast. But it's uh, it's also interesting because hey, you've got uh, uh, you know Florida has two assistants, Jordan Mincy and Darius Nichols, especially uh, those guys. The last two summers have had uh, they've gotten a lot of interviews, but haven't gotten uh, you know haven't gotten that head job. And hey, maybe it's them saying, hey, I'd rather be an assistant at Florida versus a mid-major head coach at these programs that we're calling. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, man, if you see the players that uh, that these two assistants are recruiting, if you see the fact that those are the primary X and O's guys, the, the primary development guys, uh, I, I'm just maybe a little bit surprised. I, I mean, I'm so happy that we've gotten to see them in Gainesville for so long. Uh, but yeah, it's something I was uh, I was definitely thinking about as I was reading your article. And I think it's safe to say that they eventually those two are, are going to end up getting a job somewhere, right? Like they're both very highly regarded. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know the specific ins and outs of, of the places that they have interviewed, but I do know that there is uh, in the coaching industry, there is a lot of respect for, for what those two guys do, but you did bring up something that's interesting. And you mentioned how those guys are the head X's and O's guys and the head um, player development guys. And one of the things that, that kind of becomes, a little bit of a stereotype in the coaching industry is the black assistant that is there to relate to the black players on the staff, to be able to help these white head coaches recruit the black athletes onto their roster and onto their campus. And, and uh, the one really interesting number that, that stood out to me was uh, every single high major staff in the country, when you throw in the Big East and you throw in the American Athletic Conference, every single one of the, those staffs, I think, believe it's 87 teams in those seven leagues, every single one of them has at least one black assistant. <laughs> and 59% of the total assistants at that level as of uh, March 2020. So like it, it, it's it's probably not the same exact number at this point because the, we had we went through an entire coaching carousel since I did that. But as of March 2020, that 59% of high major assistants were black coaches. And there are eight that were uh, getting jobs at the high major level. I, I also think it's important to note that when you factor in the American and the Big East, like that number jumps up significantly. Uh, the big combined 11 of the 22 head coaches in those two leagues are uh, are African American, and um, I think now now that UConn has left the American and is it and is in the Big East, the American is now uh, greater than fifty percent. It's six of the eleven head coaches are are black in the American. But uh, to the point, I'm kind of rambling a little bit. But to the point, um, what happens with a lot of these black assistant coaches? They they kind of get labeled as recruiters, right? They get labeled as the guys that have the relationships. Um, with high school head coaches and with AAU coaches, and uh, they're there to be able to get the players that the white coaches um, evaluate as good enough and deem as the targets they want to be able to get. And that's kind of what the stereotype ends up being. And, and uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was I was talking with one guy uh, who was 
um, at the time, like a, a, a director of basketball operations. And he said that, you know, you, if you're an assistant Dobo, you are basically like the bottom of the coaching rung, right? You're, you're about as low as it can get. It's the entry level job where you get paid like $10,000 a year. And he, and one of the things that like you do with that job is like you, you get the coach's car if he had to go out with a bunch of uh, boosters or something like that. And you bring it to him to the restaurant that he's at or things like that. And you're basically the errand boy on the staff. And uh, this guy who was black, um, <laughs> well, and I guess he still is black. Uh, but yeah. so, um, but he was, uh, called by his head coach to go to this restaurant to like bring his car, which was, uh, you know, like a quarter of a mile away from, from the basketball offices and the, uh, the head coach, like when he walked in, the head coach was there with a whole bunch of his white friends, a bunch of white boosters, a bunch of white alumni, um, a bunch of white season ticket holders. And he walks in and, and, and one of the, one of the guys there was like, Oh coach, is this your, uh, is this your new recruiter here? And everybody in that restaurant started laughing. And it's things like that that really stood out to me wow. in, in talking with people about um, kind of about these numbers and about the situation. And and it's it's tough because on the one hand, if you're a high major assistant coach, that you're probably making like two hundred thousand dollars to three hundred thousand dollars, maybe more, um, depending on on where you're coaching and how good you are at what you do. And if you're just a recruiter, like that is a very, very nice way to make a living, right? Like three hundred thousand dollars to, to to be a guy that goes out and gets players. Um, so there are like th- these are there are a lot of families that can make a lot of money and and set themselves up for a very, very good, uh, you know, future um, simply by going out and recruiting players. And and sometimes. Guys settle for that, right? Like they say, okay, look, I'm making this amount of money. Then you know, my my life is good at this point. Like I don't, I don't. Uh, maybe they don't necessarily have the ambitions, but that it, it kind of ends up being that that is the the blanket statement for everybody involved, right? In, instead of just being like, okay, there are some guys that really don't want much more than this. Maybe they're not cut out to be head coaches. Uh, maybe like really all they can do is go out and, and build relationships. Like there are guys I know that are like the, the recruiters on staffs that don't even go to practice, right? Like they'll just, the wow. entire reason they're on there is because of the relationships that they have and their ability to go out and get players. And like, you know, if we're being frank, the, their ability to uh, fund some of these athletes and some of these AAU coaches and some of these middlemen um, and, and to be able to do the dirt that gets done to be able to get players onto campus. And, and they just don't even go to practice. Like th- that actually <laughs> happens at, at high major college basketball levels. But uh, to to paint everybody with the same broad brush, um, because you can think of a couple people that, that kind of fit that mold, uh, that is what ends up being problematic. And it's something that I think happens a little too much. And it's something that I think needs to get called out. And, uh, you know, you mentioned you, it, it took a lot for me to write that. And I don't really think it did. I, I I do think that um, there are other guys that deserve credit for this as well. Like this is something that Jeff Goodman at Stadium has been very, very outspoken about. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily been as much publicly, but it's something that he definitely fights for. Sam Vecina at the Athletic um, has definitely uh, spoken about this and uh, reported stories on this topic quite a bit himself. I don't know if he actually ran his story yet. Maybe I shouldn't have put that out there, but um but yeah so I'm, I'm definitely not the only one it's something that has become quite evident and you know with everything that's happened uh in the last two months in in the united states it kind of turned out to be a uh, fairly timely piece so i think i got a little bit lucky with that 
Well, speaking of Jeff Goodman, uh, so he had Scotty Lewis on a podcast recently, uh, as well as Luca Garza, a few players. And uh, Scotty Lewis obviously has been super vocal these last couple of months. It's been fantastic to hear him talk on, on, on so many issues. But He's an impressive uh, he told- kid. He's super impressive, and and he told the story that that I just laughed at hysterically at the podcast because I, I and I also remember it when it was happening, you know, covering the Gators. But uh, it was when Dusty May left to go be the head coach at Florida Atlantic, and there was a lot of people covering the Gators who said, uh, "So who's who's going to be who's going to be Mike White's X and O guy? How how is he going to replace his X and O guy?" And it was just like, uh, when when did he get that label? And this is not disrespect to Dusty May, who I think is an excellent coach, but hey. Uh, at the time, the staff was Jordan Mincy, Darius Nichols, two black assistants, and then Dusty May, a, a white assistant. And as soon as Dusty May goes for a head coaching job, it was like, "Hey, who's who's going to be who's going to be White's X and O guy?" And I thought it was just so funny that it was like, "Hey, well, he's got to be the he's got to be the X and O guy." And and it was Scotty Lewis told me said that story on the podcast again. It reminded me of the way that 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 whole situation went down with like, "Hey, who's who's White going to get to replace?" Dusty Mays, X and O guy. And, and at that moment, I just promised that, hey, if, if Florida ever gets another white assistant coach, I promise I'm going to, it does not matter what the actual truth is, he is going to be the relationship guy. I will exclusively refer to the white assistant <laughs> as, as recruiter and, and, and just, just to see people's reaction. That that, that will happen. Yeah, I, I remember um, I remember hearing that story too. And, and Scotty Lewis, man, really, really impressive kid. You, I mean, you said it. Uh, I, I I knew a little bit about what he was doing, uh, but I was very like it was it was motivating to listen to him speak about the the subjects that mean a lot to him. So yeah, uh, you know, shout out to Scotty Lewis, man. And and I got another story that kind of fits with that as well. Um, there's a guy, a very good friend of mine. I'm I'm not gonna say his name, uh, <laughs> but he is he's 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 black and he was hired onto a new staff uh, a couple of years ago. And as soon as he got there, they ended up reeling off like three commitments from top 40 recruits in the span of like, uh, I don't know, like six weeks or something like that after he got there. Like uh, as soon as he got there, they started landing these recruits and they got this great recruiting class. And um, a, a couple of years ago, like they were one of the teams that was kind of hyped up out of nowhere. And it's like, oh yeah, they got this great future because they got these kids coming in. And everybody just started giving credit to the guy that was just hired. He's like, <laughs> I've never even met the players yeah. that we just got commitments from. I've never... I've never scouted them. I've never spoken to them. I just got hired because I'm like really good at uh, being a basketball coach and all these other guys did all this work and I'm getting the credit for it. And he's like, I'm not going to say anything about it publicly, but uh, we all know why this is happening. Oh, that's wild. Uh, well, we, we definitely uh, appreciated you, you know, writing that piece and we, we wanted to make sure that we asked you about it when we, we had you on the show. I think um, one thing that, you know, we've been doing on our show a little more uh, is kind of branching out. It's, it's the off season too. So it's kind of like you get into, you can't, we'd love to talk about Florida a lot, but, but we, we do that every show. So we got to talk about other stuff. And I thought one way to do that would be to, to kind of play a little buy or sell around the national landscape. And I thought we could start is uh, another free way to tell our listeners to, to read Rob's stuff with uh, Baylor. And I know what your answer is going to be on this, but, but I'm tossing out there kind of to get Eric's feel on it, but let me, let me frame it a little differently. Baylor's a really healthy program right now. Buy or sell that Scott Drew ever has a team that capable of winning the NCAA tournament again, though. Uh, Next year, if they get Jared (laughs) Butler back, I think that they might, (laughs) might actually be better. Um, You know, people forget that Tristan Clark, when, 
so the 2018-19 season for the first like I guess what would it have been like the first 10, 12 weeks or so, like yeah. the first three months of the season, he was their best player. And then he got a knee injury that lingered into last season. And part of the reason like he never really was able to play was because he was never really healthy. And if he gets back healthy, then the guy that was the best player for a Baylor team in you know a couple of years ago is coming back to take over for a guy and Freddie like look I love the Freddie Gillespie story you know a former D3 guy all of these injuries came out of nowhere he's going to get a shot in the NBA at some point um, I, I love the Freddie Gillespie story Freddie Gillespie really is is nothing more than just kind of like a a defensive presence right lob target go out there work really hard be 24 years old and play college basketball that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, Tristan Clark is a guy that's actually like a really talented low post player and for a team that can go through droughts where they really struggle to score. You know, if they get Jared Butler back and Tristan Clark ends up being healthy, that's the kind of team that could end up winning a national title. And uh, there are going to be a lot of people that have them preseason one next season, uh, preseason number one next season. I'm going to have Villanova regardless of what happens. But I very much think that Baylor like is justified being the number one team in college basketball. But uh, to answer your question, like I buy them very much in the long term because there's no coach in the country save for, you know, maybe like Jay Wright that is as good as Scott Drew is at like identifying the players that just fit well with what he wants to do. You know, it, it, it's amazing. As good as they were last season, there wasn't a top 75 consensus recruit on that roster. And um, they just like if you look at the guys that they've got, like they got a division three transfer in Freddie Gillespie. They got a guy from UNC Asheville uh, in Macy Oteague. Um, they have a transfer coming in from Presbyterian and Adam Flagler. Like they, they go up. Devonte Bandu was a guy that was uh, from some like random junior college. So they go out and they find all these guys that no one else really wants. Like I, I don't want to say find them on the scrap heap because a lot of these guys are like kind of borderline top 100 players that everyone knows is really, really good. And maybe Baylor just realizes like how they can use them better than other programs. Maybe it's just a player development, whatever it is. Scott Drew was going out and getting guys that aren't like, he's not doing this with Zion Williamson, RJ Barrett and Trey Jones and Cam Reddish. You know, he's going out and he's finding guys and uh, making it work. And I think as much as anybody in the country, this side of Jay Wright, like he, he might be the best at doing it. So um, it's, it's, uh, Anything that you have to ask me about Baylor, I'm buying. Yeah, I'd be on the same uh, the same side of buying. And something you kind of alluded to is like uh, he's been doing it with uh, with yeah guys that are you know unranked transfers or low three star guys, uh, and he's been able to get the best out of them. But the thing is, like now he's recruiting at a super high level. Like he's already got two five stars in 2021, and in Kendall Brown, who's one of the best players from Wichita, and uh, Langston Love, I believe his name is. He's he's yeah. a Montverde, and yeah, he's a five star too. So like he's got uh, he's got two five stars in 2021. So uh, and then I think he's got another top 100, and then uh, in 2020 he's got he's got a couple a couple top. 100 kids coming in Zach Loveday who's out of the top 100 but it's a seven footer I really like so it's like hey he did all this uh without a ton of uh yeah again I don't want to be disrespectful by saying he did it without a bunch of great players they clearly turn out to be great players uh but uh when you see the way that he's recruiting now uh, I, I just think yeah I, I think they're going to be a force and, and you know he's still probably going to be sprinkling in those hidden gems sprinkling in those traditional transfers uh yeah I, I I'm absolutely buying the one thing that you you have to buy with Scott Drew at this point is he's not going to bring players into his program just because they're five-star recruits. Like, coaches have gotten in trouble that way. When 
uh, when Villanova had like the, those two or three years where they were really down um, after they made it to the final four in 2009, it was because Jay Wright was just going out and uh, recruiting based off of like the scout top 100 or whatever it was. Like he wasn't necessarily finding guys that fit into what would work at a school like Villanova. And they would get onto campus and Jay would be like, this is what, uh, we expect out of you guys. And, and they were like, well, this is not what I signed up for. Like, uh, I wanted this, that, and the third. And, and so they weren't doing a good job identifying players that fit into the Villanova culture. And uh, they've changed that, you know. So they're not going out and they're and getting um, maybe the, the best prospects in the country or the best players in the country, but they're getting guys that fit the best into what they want to do. And, you know, they've won two of the last four national titles that have been played and they're going to head into next season as the preseason number one team in the country. Like they can legitimately win three out of five national titles. Like that is like dynasty type stuff. So uh, I think Baylor is like, I don't want to say that they're going to get to that level because expecting anybody to win three out of five national titles or or two out of four, whatever it is, uh, expecting anyone to win a national title is like putting them on a pedestal that is almost unfair uh, in terms of level of expectation. But, um, Scott Drew's going to be a top three. Te- uh, Scott Drew's going to have a top three team in the country for very good reason. So I'm 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 all in on the Bears. I think that this is the that comment about fitting and finding players that fit what they want to do is because I was wondering where how are we going to ask Rob for a Florida take before we <laughs> stop talking about Florida? And I think that's this is probably the best segue. And I, I know Eric knows where I'm going, but but I'll tell this story to frame the question. So, you know, Florida gets boat raced by Michigan um, in the second round. Uh, I guess that would have, would have been last year, right? Not, not this past NCAA tournament, but the one prior. They, they beat that Nevada team full of pros, and then they, they really get embarrassed by Michigan. And Mike White was pretty upset, and uh, he, he flies out to Oklahoma City and has lunch with Billy Donovan. And – you know, the story is that that Billy told him, um, you know, you have to you have to be you. You have to recruit guys that do what you do best. You can't fall in love with recruiting rankings. You can't fall in love with with being, oh, Mike White's the second best recruiter behind Cal in the league. That stuff doesn't matter if if the system and the fits aren't right. And I think what you've seen in the last two off seasons now with Florida is yeah, there's Mike White hot. There's Mike White hot seat talk down here, Rob. Which you know we don't need to get into whether or not that's fair or not. But but I think what you're seeing is a roster overhaul where he said, "I want my teams to look more like these Louisiana Tech teams that were so fun, and I'm gonna get more wings, get more acclimated to to kind of what's working in modern basketball." play faster. And I mean, if you, if you, I don't want to say they processed Andrew Nimhard, that's not fair at all, but that wasn't a terrific fit for Mike White. And so you kind of wonder if some of the roster overhaul and stuff is Mike looking at programs like Scott Drew or listening to a guy like Billy, who was a master at that and saying, that's what I have to fix. Well, that's exactly what my take is because I I do feel like I don't want to say that they're going to be better without Andrew Nemhard heading into next season because that's probably unfair to a guy that is definitively like and, and inarguably a really, really good basketball player. But if you're trying to get up and down the floor, if you're trying to press, if you're trying to force turnovers, if you're trying to do the things that Billy did, uh, I'm sorry, that Mike White did when he was at uh, Louisiana Tech, like you can't have Andrew Nemhard 
be your point guard. Now, you want to talk about Andrew Nemhart at Gonzaga playing the same role as like a Nigel Williams Goss or someone like that? Okay. Right. He's probably going to have a very, very good career there. I would not be shocked if he ended up being uh, on that same path as Nigel Williams Goss, who ended up being uh, what was his redshirt junior year. He was a first team All American. He took Gonzaga to the national title game. Um, he ended up being a second round draft pick. He played for two years for I think it was was it Zagreb in uh, in Croatia? Maybe uh, I can't remember who it was. It was one of the, one of the really big Serbian clubs. He was there for two years, and then he came back. And now I think that last I saw, he was on the Jazz um, the Jazz roster. I don't know if he made it into the bubble, and he still is. But he's definitely a part of the Jazz organization at this point right now. So he ended up. Things worked out for him when he left Washington and went to Gonzaga, and I think that it's probably going to happen with Andrew Nemhart as well. I would not be shocked. Uh, but as far as what Florida is, you know, if you can tell me that you have Trey Mann coming back, you have Scotty Lewis, and you have Keontae Johnson, and those are your three guys, and you're going to get out there and you're going to play up-tempo and you're going to kind of let them rock and you're going to use someone like a Noah Locke out there to space the floor and you're going to let Omar Payne be someone that can get up and down and just say, hey, look, we know you're we know you're long, we know you're athletic, we need you to get some offensive rebounds, we need you to be a – uh, uh, you know, a vertical spacer as a lob target, um, the pick and rolls. We need you to protect the rim. Um, you ask those guys to do the things that, that that you can say, like, they're really good at in terms of just being, like, athletic, right? Like, I don't think people realize how good Keontae Johnson is. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I, I had a conversation with someone the other day, and we were talking about, like, the, the top 10, 15 players in college basketball heading into next season. And he had Keontae Johnson top 10. And I was like, why, why do you have him there? Like, is he going to be the best player on that team? And then I went back and I looked at the stats and I was like, oh, you got a guy that is like a <laughs> six foot five wing that can guard all these different positions that can be a shooting guard that can play the four. If you need him to that shoots 38% from three that averaged 14 and seven last year, like that dude can play. And I don't think people realize just how good he is. And if you have him at, and Scotty Lewis as like your three and your four, in a team that is going to get out and press, that is going to run, that is going to play small ball, that is going to try to force turnovers, that's going to let them take advantage of the physical tools and the skills that they have, like that could be a really good team. And I don't think that you were able to necessarily do that when you had Kerry Blackshirt at the five and, and Andrew Nemhart at the point. So uh, I'm going to be very interested in seeing what Mike White does next season. You, you mentioned the hot seat. I don't think that he is uh, in danger of being fired. Uh, and I would honestly say like if Florida fired him at any point, like in the next year, like that they're probably jumping the gun barring like a just disastrous season next year. Uh, but I do think it's fair to say that he has significantly underwhelmed based off of what I expected when he got there. Well, maybe significantly is too strong, but he's definitely underwhelmed based off of what I thought yeah. when he got there. And we're like a season or two away from having a very realistic conversation about like, okay, is he the guy? Do we need to move on here? Do we need to make a change? So I think it's too soon to start talking about that, but it's not too soon to start saying, yo, he's got to get this thing going soon. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, I think Eric and I both think uh, that that's, that's pretty fair, Eric. Oh yeah, I, I definitely think it's fair, and and uh, yeah, it, I, I still am just thinking about that that Andrew Nembhard transfer, and it's just kind of funny because 
Uh, you see it in the NBA all the time where there's a trade that happens and everyone immediately wants to rush to say, hey, did this team win the trade or did this team win the trade? And, uh, you know, oftentimes it feels like one team won the trade, but like every once in a while, there's that awesome trade where both sides really come out about equal. And when it comes to the transfer market in college basketball, uh, usually it's one team that loses a good player and another team gets a good player. And that is not very equal. But this is kind of a weird situation where it's like, I really think Gonzaga is going to get the best out of Andrew Nemhart and are a lot be, a lot better because they got him. And I think the Gators might be in a little bit better of a position that, that he moved on. And it's just funny because you just, you don't really see that in college basketball with, with transfers very often where uh, it's like, wow, this is the perfect team for a player to go to. Like, this is awesome for him personally. And also the team that he's leaving is like, okay, well, you know what? We're probably better off with uh, with Cleveland State transfer. Tyree Appleby running the point <laughs> than, than you. And uh, it, it's cool because, yeah, this is like that NBA trade where it's like you can't really pick a winner. So are, are you guys excited about Appleby? I feel like he's going to be a pretty good fit if you, you know, this is the kind of team that is going to uh, really get up and down the floor. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I, uh, you know, last summer I, I spent a week watching every minute he played for Cleveland State last year for, you know, <laughs> for writing and podcast. So, so the joke, Rob, is that I am the the resident uh, Tyree Appleby expert. But I, I, I love everything about him. I, I just think his ability to make shots off the dribble. I mean, he was like a 39% three point shooter, and like 76% or something of his shots were off the dribble. So, so to be able to shoot that three point clip while uh, taking so many of your shots off the bounce, I thought that was uh, super special. He had, an, like, uh, talking about Andrew Nemhart, I, I really thought he was one of the best passers in college basketball, uh, but Tyree Appleby had a better assist rate than him. So does that mean he's a better passer? Uh, maybe not necessarily, but it certainly puts him into uh, into a high level of, uh, of distribution. And uh, I do think that he really just fits what Mike White wants to do. He he wants guys that can go downhill, who can get a dribble handoff and attack going downhill. And and that uh, when you roll out a backcourt of, of Andrew Nemhart and Noah Locke, that, that wasn't really the case these last two years. <laughs> but I, I think I think Tyree Appleby is uh, is just going to be an absolutely explosive offensive player who uh, maybe will give up a little bit on the other end. But uh, but Florida has some defenders to cover for him. They need that primary initiator offensively, and and I think he's the guy. So uh, there's my pitch for for Tyree Appleby next year. The one thing I am worried about a little bit with him is is he seems to be a guy that can kind of dribble the air out of the ball. If that makes sense, like he he he. I hope that he doesn't have to have the ball in his hands. Uh, you know, 75% of a possession in order to be effective. That makes sense because I yeah. think that there's enough other pieces on that roster where, you know, when you're at Cleveland state and you can play at a certain level, it probably makes sense for you to, to be a completely ball dominant point guard. Whereas when you are at Florida and you have a couple of NBA wings on the roster um, with you, then, then you probably have to be a little bit more willing to give it up and a little bit more willing to say, okay, this Keontae Johnson guy, yeah, he's pretty good. Maybe we should be able to uh, kind of give him a chance to rock a little bit. Yeah. Him, him coexisting with, with Trey Mann as, as the sixth man or whatever role they're going to have Trey play. I think it's going to be the sixth man. It's going to be pretty interesting too. I, you know, that's a challenge. And, and I think the staff last year, their biggest air Rob was the way that they came out, and tried to play that that dribble drive offense f- from the beginning instead of just saying, "Look, Kerry Blackshear is going to be kind of the the sun around which the the offense orbits, and this is what we're going to do, and we're going to run a lot of this Princeton stuff that they ran late in the season, and it's going to work better." You know, Florida was way more efficient in February and March when they abandoned that that dribble drive stuff. Now they kind of have to decide 
you know, is Apple going to be that primary guy? And then what role do we carve out for Trey? So it's interesting. I, I wanted to, to kind of transition um, away from Florida to, to the, the big question that I have, and I think a lot of people have about, uh, you know, the season. And, and that is, let's make it a twofer. You know, do you think there will be non-conference basketball games in the regular season? And if there aren't, let's stay in the sec. Does that hurt Kentucky uh, in a way that, you know, that, that is that an adjustment John Calipari will be able to deal with really well? I don't know if it, it hurts Kentucky. I, I don't think that there is going to be non-conference play. Um, and, and the reason for that is if you can't have fans in the stands, then it doesn't make sense like buy games economically just do not make sense. The whole right. concept of a buy game, which is for people that don't know, a buy game is where these power conference schools pay uh, like what, 75 grand, somewhere between 75 and 100 grand um, to smaller conference schools to come play them. And uh, then what they do is they make that money back because they can sell tickets, they can sell parking, they can sell concessions at the game, they can sell all these different things. Um, to be able to make a profit on that game. So they end up netting, what, like, I don't know, $150,000. And and uh, maybe they're, they're like the take is like, what, two fifty, dollars and, and they spend $90,000 on bringing a team in. You you gross one hundred sixty dollars whatever it is. Like, that's how you make money off of uh, buy games and non-conference games. If you don't have fans in the stands, then you're not paying that money for non-conference games. So the economics of it doesn't just uh, doesn't make sense. The other part of it is that, the athletic departments at the bigger conference schools have the money and have the means to be able to test at a certain level that programs like, like I don't know, like Eastern Kentucky or, or um, whoever it is uh, that aren't, they're not going to be able to um, have their basketball players tested as often as someone in like the Big Ten or someone in the SEC. So uh, I just don't know how you can feel comfortable bringing someone onto your campus uh, from another school, from another campus environment uh, without knowing if they have the same level of testing and the same level of uh, uh, what's the best way to phrase it, of being able to know for sure whether or not you have anybody on that roster that's COVID positive, right? Because like playing basketball is not necessarily safe, when you don't know if people are going to be like, it's a, it's a contact sport. You're going to be right. Like we, we know, we know how this spreads when like when it's you're breathing deep and people are exhaling hard. And when you're running up and down the basketball floor and you're like, you're one guy's gasping for air while the other guy's gasping for air. And if one of them has a coronavirus, then it's probably going to end up spreading on a basketball court. Right. Does that all make sense? Can we all yeah. kind of like agree <laughs> that that's what it's going to be? So um, if you don't know if everybody on that other team, uh, is 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 negative, then I don't think that you want to be bringing them onto your campus, especially if there's students on campus, right? And and so my biggest take is that I think the basketball part, like it, I I think you have less less to worry about with that than you do with these kids like being actual students on campus, right? Mm. I think it's it's far more risky to allow them to live in a dorm or allow them to go to class or allow them to be on a campus environment uh, where there are going to be like kids having parties all the time 
um, than it will be to just say, okay, you're going to be a basketball player that plays in all these games. We're going to have you tested this much, this, that, and the third. So um, I don't know how they're going to be able to be students. Like the athlete part, we're, I'm, I'm watching the NBA, like the, we're watching the Clippers and the Lakers right now. Like the bubble works right. in the NBA. So you can do a bubble with all the SEC programs. It just doesn't make sense for them to be able to be student athletes. And if you do that, how are you going to say like, yeah, okay, they're they're students first, but you know what? We're not going to send them to class. We're going to go send them to this bubble because our athletic departments aren't going to be able to function unless we uh, have some kind of SEC content to be able to sell to ESPN. And uh, we're not going to be able to have like college basketball anymore unless we have an NCAA tournament. So um, I, I just, I don't know how you can, can, continue the charade of amateurism uh, while having these kids play in a bubble, if that makes sense. So there's, there's so many things that you have to work through. And and the biggest reason why I'm concerned about the season is I feel like the leadership for all of the, the, for the NCAA, for a lot of these conferences just doesn't necessarily stack up uh, to the leadership that you're seeing in, um, you know, like the, the premier league in, in England or that you're seeing with, uh, with 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 the NBA or even like the MLS kind of had like a rocky start, but they they more or less figured it out. Yeah, right? like you got they, it together. They're, they're, we just I just was watching the quarterfinals of one of those games. Like they they figured it out. They got it together. They made it work. So uh, and and we're seeing with Major League Baseball like how much of a mess it can be if you don't have that bubble going. If you aren't able to uh, to get organized and have the right kind of leadership. So. That's the biggest worry that I have is that there's just too many idiots in charge in, in college sports. Eric? Well, I, I wanted to ask this to, to Robin and then you too, Neil. Uh, but uh, so, so, Rob, my story as a Florida fan is definitely a lot different. I'm born in Canada, still live in Canada. And I actually came to following the Gators when I was like 12 years old, watching the uh, 2006 uh, Gators win a championship. So I've always been a basketball fan first. So I'm definitely not one of these people who likes to flex the SEC muscle. Hey, it means more. We're the only thing that matters. But hey, now that it comes to we might need a possible bubble suddenly i'm like man the uh the sec is is all that matters in football they've got all the money is there any chance that they say hey uh uh, we'll play you Florida Gulf Coast. Here is 500 tests for the two weeks leading up to a possible game. Or, hey, we've got the resources to do a bubble in a way that a lot of other leagues can't. Uh, do you think there's any element of the SEC being the powerhouse kind of business league of, of the college sports world that's going to give them an advantage even over like the Big 12 or uh, the Big East? Do you, do you think there's an advantage to being the big football conference here? Or do you think that's uh, that's just not going to matter? I, I don't think it's going to matter. I mean, I didn't uh, – correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the SEC today, didn't they announce they're not going to have any non-conference games for football? Yeah. They and they're did. just going to do a 10-game conference schedule. So yeah. I, I would not be shocked if the SEC just said, like, the same thing for basketball. We're not going to do that, but we're going to find a way to play 24 conference games. And honestly, like, I think it makes the most sense. There's there's too much risk involved with bringing on programs in that aren't going to have, like, the same level of – kind of standardized testing when it comes to making sure that these guys are not COVID positive. So to me, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, why would you, why would you even risk playing that, that Florida Gulf coast game when you're not going to be making any money off of it? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Eric, do you think it affects, do you think it affects Kentucky? Cause it seems like, like losing to Evansville, right? Like the way that they were, <laughs> the way they recruit 
they use these games to kind of, you know, do whatever it is that, that they do and get, get all the, the jitters out and all the freshman stuff. And we all laugh about the Cal press conferences because every John Calipari press conference except on Selection Sunday is exactly the same. And then every Selection Sunday press conference is the same. But there's two different Cal press conferences. That's my take. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> A quick story about Cal. Like, there is nobody in sports – that is better than he is at finding a way to get the, he knows what message he wants to get out anytime that he does any kind of media availability. Yeah. And there is nobody in, in, <laughs> in sports that is better at turning whatever question he has asked into the answer that he is, is, is planning to give. And I know a guy that was, he was a longtime beat writer for, uh, for, for Memphis. And he wants, um, managed to finagle his way onto a private plane. It, it was like a, so Cal was at Memphis, right? And, um, and it, like they had a Saturday to Saturday uh, off. So he could fly up to, to ESPN on like a Wednesday and go sit in studio. And, and a guy I know was, was on that private flight, uh, private flight with him up to the ESPN studios. And he said that while he was sitting there on the flight, all Cal was doing was just kind of sitting there, reciting everything that that he wanted to say um, when he was going to be on the ESPN broadcast. And the guy was like, "Like, did they give you the questions beforehand? And Cal was like, no, it doesn't matter what they ask me. I know what answers I have. So, <laughs> I just imagine like a teleprompter scrolling and him just like not just saying not the exact opposite of whatever this teleprompter says. I can also imagine him on Selection Sunday, like say the NCAA tournament expands because uh, because of the way things kind of end up working this season, and there's going to be like a regional in Lexington, and and Florida's going to or sorry, and Kentucky's going to be playing a a home game in the first round, and he's still going to complain about how he had the his team has the Thursday afternoon or something like that. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's Selection Sunday classic, but uh, but Neil, I know you didn't maybe totally finish your question, but no, I was. I, I don't know if it totally affects Kentucky just because I feel like they're going to be in the same boat as North Carolina. And I feel like they're going to be in the same boat as, as Kansas. And uh, it would be one thing if some of the other kind of teams that they're competing for recruits with or are kind of in similar roster building scenarios with if their situation was different. But hey, if it's uh, if it's the same for everyone here and uh, I don't I don't really think it's any it's uh, it's any worse for Kentucky here. Yeah, but maybe I, it's I just don't, I don't think it hurts the recruiting. What it hurts is that you have all of these young guys coming in. You don't have great point guard play. And and the way that Kentucky and, and a lot of programs like Duke has gone through issues like this. And um, you mentioned Kansas. They've gone through issues like this. And, and pretty much every team in the country outside of like maybe the top six or seven that are, are senior laden always have a rough start to November and December because they kind of work out the kinks, right? They kind of figure out, uh, okay, this doesn't work. We have these freshmen. Maybe this guy didn't come in and, and uh, is, is nowhere near as good as we thought he was going to be. We thought this guy was going to have a breakout junior year, but it turns out he just put on like 20 pounds of fat because all he did was party all summer. <laughs> so they kind of like, they, they figure things out, figure out your rotation, figure out who are going to be like your seven to eight guys that you're going to play, who's going to get shots and what kind of situation, what offense is working, what actions can you take away with this defender? Like, who do you want to guard what? So you basically figure out who you are as a team in November and December and non-conference right. play, and we're not going to get that. And I think that when it comes to programs like Kentucky that basically rebuild their roster every offseason, I think it just kind of gets magnified. So I do think that that might hurt them a little bit, but you also got to remember now, let's say the season doesn't start until January 1st. 
they're also going to like they're on campus right now working out. You know, they're right. on campus right now practicing and getting to know each other. Maybe they're not playing games, but um, I do think that it's going to be able to help having six months of practices and workouts. And and uh, even if, like, the coaches aren't there, just six months of playing pickup against guys, right? So um, I, I, I don't know how much of an impact that's going to have. I'm honestly more worried about the fact that we have Devin Askew and, uh, and Davion Mintz to um, – to put together like a, a point guard rotation when you're Kentucky and you're taking a guy that red shirted because, uh, because he was, I'm doing air quotes because he was injured and couldn't beat out guys on Creighton's backcourt to be able to play. <laughs> like when you're bringing in that guy, because you're so worried about your point guard play, like it's not necessarily a great situation. Yeah, no. And we know we'll get Cal, whatever happens if they get Alabama on a conference only schedule early and just get crushed by a veteran team like that. We'll, we'll get the, We'll get a magnified version of the, well, we're all freshmen. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's all you're gonna get, man. It's gonna, it's gonna be great. I'm really looking forward to. It. I miss Cal Pressers, and I know we're hating on Cal, but I do want to give him credit. Like what he's, the the initiative that he started for the McClendon Scholarship yeah. to be able to get. We, we talked about like the 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 black coaches stuff. One of the biggest concerns is that there was not very much diversity within the hiring process, and what he's doing with the McClendon Scholarship to be able to create. Uh, positions for minorities and pathways for minorities. Um, and and like, I, I talked with Martin Jarman, who's the AC, uh, the the AD at UCLA right now, said one of the big, biggest issues he's found in hiring minorities in certain coaching positions is that uh, they struggle to get into the pipeline, right? And there's not, the, the, on the football side, when you're going out to hire, it's, there, there aren't very many black coordinators because there aren't all that many uh, black position coaches, and maybe it's it's hard to kind of get those guys into the hiring pipeline. And what Cal is doing uh, is putting together a program and an initiative with the McClendon Scholarship um, to be able to create opportunities for minorities in athletic departments, which should, in theory, be able to create more uh, candidates to be hired when you have associate ADs and assistant AD positions open up. And once you get minorities into those positions, all of a sudden you have a lot of great candidates for AD positions and AD and, and uh, athletic directors and, and people that do all of the, the hiring when it comes to coaches. And once you have more minorities in the positions of hiring, then it, it would, it would make sense that you're going to have more people that are uh, going to be more, I don't want to, I don't know if more comfortable um, hiring uh, the black coaches, but I, I do think that it will, you'll see the numbers go up because I think it's just kind of human nature. You connect with people that look like you and mm -hmm. you're more likely to hire people that you connect with. Does that make sense? Like, I no. don't think it's out mm -hmm. and out racism. I think it's just kind of like, no, it does. I mean, I heard it just, it is what it is. No. Yeah. I mean, I heard, uh, I heard Jay Billis talking to Jerry Stackhouse and that was a point that, that Stackhouse made was that, you know, I'm not, he made it a little more eloquently than I think I'm about to, but, but he said, uh, you know, if you hire Chris Mullen at St. John's, uh, for example, you know, nobody bats an eyelash, right? It's kind of like, okay, you know, he, he's a great player. He's going to come back here and, and recruit and do a good job. But, but if Stackhouse gets hired, you know, people might think about it, but because of who the athletic director was, uh, you know, it was just something that, that wasn't quite as it was possible for him. And, you know, maybe the McClendon scholarship will make and create that kind of situation where, 
where we don't blink as much at, at hiring a guy that really hasn't been a head coach at the collegiate level. And, and, you know, but, but as a successful basketball person. Yeah. I mean, the, the Jerry Stackhouse hire was, was just kind of weird because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was, it's, it's hard to be a college basketball coach and be able to deal with all of like the, the minutia that you have to deal with. And, 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 you know, when it comes to like the basketball stuff, I'm not worried about Jerry Stackhouse with the basketball stuff. I'm like, it's, what does Jerry Stackhouse know about uh, about making sure that kids are going to be able to stay eligible and, and um, how are you like avoiding all of the 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 bullshit that comes with? Uh, I'm sorry for curse. I don't know. If no, you're you're curse, okay. All, all of all, all of the stuff that comes with NCAA compliance, like that's what I'm worried about with Jerry Stackhouse when it comes to uh, his ability to be a college basketball coach. I, you know, I said this with Juwan Howard last year, like the. And and Patrick Ewing too. Like the issue is not necessarily their ability to go out there and create a game plan and find a way to win with the guys that they have on their roster. Right. It is like how do you, how do they keep the guys on their roster eligible more or less? Like how do you how do you deal with all the stuff that comes with being a college basketball coach that has nothing to do with basketball? Like being a college basketball coach, probably thirty percent of your job is is basketball. Like how are are they going to be prepared? Uh, to do all of the other stuff. And um, the answer might be yes. You know, I'm not saying that they're not. I'm just saying, like, there's so much more that goes into being a college basketball coach than just coaching basketball. Well, and especially at Vanderbilt. I I mean, that's (laughs) That's a good point. That stuff, and and especially when you're in the SEC. I mean, uh, uh, thinking about the difference in academic requirements between a few of those institutions and (laughs) Vanderbilt, uh, that's that's difference. And, hey, I think a lot of – The real question is, if you're Jerry Stackhouse, like, why are you settling for Vanderbilt? Sit your sights a little higher, buddy. <laughs> uh, is that I, enough? Like, am I doing the SEC slander right? The, the no, guy? you are. I mean, who who wants who wants to play in Memorial Gym, right? Who wants to work there? Have you ever been there? No, it's so <laughs> weird though. It's the weirdest place. Uh, it's the weirdest gym I've ever been in. My like SEC slander thing is like I honestly feel bad making fun of Vanderbilt because it's just like, <laughs> at such a disadvantage in the SEC. So I, I it's like I, it's I feel like it's a little bit of like the little brother thing where I just like feel like I just want to like like I'll, I'll make fun of Georgia and, and Kentucky and and laugh about Cal Perry getting Jacob Top and thinking he's gonna his brother's skill is gonna rub off on him like through osmosis, despite <laughs> being five points a game in the A10. And so I like I'll I'll laugh at that, but then at Vanderbilt, I'm like, man, that's just such a tough tough situation and uh, tough job. Can't punch think, down, so, right? No, no, yeah, I, right. I just feel like again, like uh, so many teams, uh, you see these uh, these college programs that are hiring ex NBA guys, thinking that they're going to pull players a lot, recruiting wise, or or think that they might uh, uh, they might have an edge there. And it's just like when you're when you're in Vanderbilt, it's like it's not like he can go walk into any gym and and go get any player he wants just because of the academic kind of uh, element of it but uh, i think we saw some really good like like i thought he got his guys last year to, to play to the best of their abilities i thought they uh they, they ran some junk at a couple teams and, and junked up a couple games to uh, to some really good effect uh, i thought he got the best out of some of his very limited ball handlers and and uh yeah i i think he could coach but man uh, like you said rob like why <laughs> why he went to vanderbilt and, and that's where he's going to kind of establish things that's uh that's tough but hey if he can do it that's uh that's all the credit to him I mean, he had two NBA players on his roster last year, and Aaron Neesmith. I know he got hurt, but it was Aaron Neesmith and Saban Lee are both going to be playing in the NBA. Yeah. So, like, you, I mean, you got to, if you have two pros, like, you got to be better, man. You got to be better.
So let's uh, let's close with the Big East and and place close to your heart. Um, so the UConn Renaissance is upon us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm telling everybody, man. That's what J- I'm telling James, everybody. James Booknight is good at basketball. I, I've seen him. He's, I've seen he's him play. so athletic. He's so athletic. There's going to be like at least three times. If there is a season, there's going to be at least three times a season where he does something uh, and dunks on somebody where you're just like, wow, I, I don't know how that's physically possible. Um, <laughs> but like the, the big thing for, for Dan Hurley is – just simply getting James Booknight back, right? Like if you're, we talked about this with Scott Drew, and, and and part of what makes him so good is identifying players that fit fit with what he wants. But the other part of it is like roster continuity, and I feel like that's something that's not necessarily talked about enough when it comes to success at the college level is being able to get your really good players to come back for another year, and getting a guy like James Booknight. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna say, yeah, he's gonna be an All American, just kind of. <laughs> um, because why not? But I like I really do think he has a chance to be like one of these like breakout stars that uh, that that ends up being one of the, the the best players in the Big East next season. And having a guy like that come back for a second year is something that matters just so much because uh, you know roster continuity, getting these talented guys coming back to school, uh, being able to kind of instill a culture and a system and and develop it more. You know, when, when it, with uh, with Booker Knight bat, it, it's just it's one less guy that you have to teach everything to as opposed to being able to build on what you you installed last year, if that makes sense. So um, his return matters so much. And uh, I do think that like Dan Hurley, like he's proven he can recruit. The biggest issue at this point is being able to um, keep the guys around long enough that they can kind of uh, reach their potential as players in college before uh, heading off to the NBA. And, um, you know, continuing to to win games in what is going to be a much, much, much tougher league than the American. They got tougher last year, though, didn't they? They got better at defense as the season went along in particular, which I know he was he was kind of pleased about. Yeah, I mean, it was there, there were so many times throughout the year where he basically said something like I'm, I'm don't quote me on this, but he was basically like, you don't want to see us in a month or you don't want to see us in March. You know, they they were. They were one of those teams that kind of felt like they played better in a lot of games uh, than maybe what the result was telling you, if that yeah. makes sense. They were just – they lost a lot of close games. They had a lot of weird, like, endings to games. They were, they were, I don't know if, like, saying they were unlucky necessarily counts, but there were a lot of winnable games that just kind of went the other way for them. So um, I don't think they're as far away as their record might indicate. But uh, you know, there, there's there's still some some growth to be had within that program. Uh, I you know I, I do, but I am one of the guys that that really buys into what uh, Dan Hurley is doing um, and buys into him as a coach. You know, he, he's I don't know how much you guys have have kind of heard him talk or or uh, gotten to know him at all, but he's like he is such a fiery competitor that I, I just don't think that there's going to be all that many players that don't just love playing for him, right? Like he's, he's not, it's not like Frank Martin where he's like screaming at you and cussing at you and you got those angry faces and everything, but he just like wants to win so damn bad that it, it seems uh, like he kind of, you know, he's a former, former college player and it feels like he kind of wears it on his sleeve like that. 
Well, so, something I loved was uh, last year against uh, against Syracuse. Like, so obviously, like one or two or maybe three games into his time at, at, at UConn, uh, and they're playing, uh, you know, a tight game against Syracuse. They ended up pulling out, pulling out and winning. And it was all these guys that obviously he didn't recruit. Uh, he kind of inherited. And I just remembered him uh, giving huge hugs to to Altree Gilbert and Christian Vital, and uh, and just that uh, it was just amazing because it was like, man, these are not guys that he recruited. That he didn't have a huge relationship but he just like so badly wanted wanted them to win and, and them to succeed and I was like man that's pretty cool because to be honest like sometimes they see Dan Hurley's antics and I'm like uh maybe I thought it got a little old for me uh it's a little different hey we got Mike White so I mean those are two very opposite personalities so maybe I'm just used to uh to, to someone who's not a, not as fiery uh, outwardly as uh, as a competitor as, as Hurley, but uh, but that was a certainly that was certainly a cool moment. And now so, that I see the roster he has, I mean, uh, as you probably know, Rob, I mean, Florida lost to UConn last year. They were supposed to play this year, and obviously, it does not look like that's going to happen. Yeah, it's not maybe happening. I'm, maybe I'm a, I'm a little <laughs> bit happy to not have to see them because yeah, that looks like a pretty good squad. Yeah. So two things about that. One, um, I think it was that was two years ago, and it was it was at the Garden, and for. Uh, I know there's a lot of Florida fans here. The, the Syracuse against UConn in the Garden has always been uh, one of the like. If you ever have a chance to go see that game in the Garden, it is one of the best non-conference environments that you're ever going to see. First and foremost, uh, Madison Square Garden. When it comes to big neutral site college basketball games, That's there's the um, there, there's nothing better than it. And there's nothing better than a neutral site college basketball non-conference game than Syracuse UConn in that building because you have two fan bases that believe they are New York City's college basketball team. And that's because that's where everybody that 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 grows up in Connecticut or that goes to UConn, when like the first thing they do when they get a job is they move to New York City. <laughs> Same thing with Syracuse. So like right. they are huge, huge fan bases uh, for Syracuse fans and UConn fans within that city. And so you'll get like 10,000 UConn fans and 10,000 Syracuse fans in that building going absolutely nuts because uh, this is a direct quote. Like during that game, a buddy of mine was at the game and he texted me and he was like, you know, I don't care for all that good. But my goal is that on Selection Sunday, when you see that Syracuse got left out of the tournament, they see that they lost to UConn and it was a bad loss. And that's like, <laughs> like, like that's how that's how deep the hatred goes. Uh, so watching Dan Hurley in like his third game. Uh, buy into that and 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 value that win as much as UConn fans did was I promise you something that a lot of UConn fans took to heart. The other part of it is like the 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 I think there's a there's a gif of it now, but where he's like losing his mind, like chest bumping Jalen Adams and high fiving him and going all nuts, and then all of a sudden he puts on the straight face and you see him go, <laughs> "Good game, coach," and shake Jim Beheim's hand. <laughs> Just it slays yeah. me every single time. And my favorite part about that. Because that was the uh, that was the semifinal of the like the Legends Classic or one of those things in the Garden. The next night they played Iowa in the title game, and Dan Hurley got tossed in a twenty five point loss to an Iowa team that made the NIT. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite part about that. Stuff. He got ejected from the next game. He told me that was the first time he's ever been ejected from a basketball game in his entire life. That's shocking to me. I don't know. If, I don't know if I believe it. I didn't look it up. I just I took him at face value, but. Uh, I don't know if I believe that. That's, uh, oh, ahead, I just, 
Oh, I just imagine, like like you mentioned, uh, Rob, just about how uh, how important that game is. I I, I just also imagine Dan Hurley, like say, like I, I'm sure he knew about the game, obviously, but he's also someone that I could just see being like, okay, who do I hate? Okay, it's Syracuse. Like, okay, awesome. I I want to kill them. Like, I, like he just he, it doesn't take too much to get him get him fired up. I'm picturing like the Terminator thing where it locks in on the target. And it's like, oh, Syracuse. All right, because <laughs> because Dan Hurley could be a cyborg. We don't know. He he really might be that. You know, I I saw them at the Charleston Classic, and and I, you know, after the game, they they were asking uh, Travis Steele, you know, how did you think this was a great game? What a great game for the fans! And it what it was the best ugly basketball game I saw last year. And and Tra- Travis Steele was like, well, you know, in the first overtime, we played five on six because Dan Hurley was out there guarding us. So <laughs> I remember that. So it's, a, it's good times, but but I know that them being back in the Big East has to bring you a lot of joy, Rob. Uh, you know, thanks for spending an hour with us. I, I we really appreciate it, and um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, one of the best in the in the business. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. It was good catching up with you. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. This week's show, we're going to have a special guest, Jim Root, from one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Three Man Weave. He's going to join us. He's going to talk a lot of Florida, uh, a lot of Mike White. We're going to do a lot of SEC, which which kind of evolved organically and was was really fun. Um, And then we're going to talk about various coaches on the hot seat outside of Gainesville, Florida, Um, and, and whether we think... You know, the hot seat is really a place that, that they're at. Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, as always, joins me. Uh, so we hope that you enjoy this show as much as we do. Jim is uh, absolutely one of the best basketball minds in the sport, and, and we're really glad that he came on.